And I think I was blind, mental health blind, until I was well into my 30s and very insensitive and not at all aware of it. Um, I become much better, and I believe that in terms of your direct reports, let's say the average person has 10 direct reports, shall we say, or eight, that it's part of your job is to know enough about them and what's going on in their lives that you can spot if something's wrong, and that if something is wrong, you can put it into context. And I've been doing that ever since I was in my mid-30s and encouraging other people to do it. And I think the one of the things you need to get your direct reports to talk to you about is what they're doing about theirs and do they really know what's going on in their lives. Hello and welcome. This is Ebra Talk and my name is Matt Mayer. Today I'm in conversation with Lord Stevenson. Lord Stevenson was the co-author of the 2017 report Thriving at Work, which was commissioned by the then Prime Minister, Theresa May. Lord Stevenson co-authored the report with Paul Farmer, who was then and remains the chief executive of the charity Mind. It's a really insightful conversation in which Lord Stevenson opens up about his own journey with mental health. We talk about the economic as well as the human cost of mental health challenges. And we look at the many practical action steps which were recommended in the report. Our conversation finishes with Lord Stevenson talking about what he wished he could have included in the report and would do if he did it again. Dennis, absolutely delighted to, to be having this conversation this morning. You're the you're the co-author of the Thriving at Work uh, report, and, and that was an independent review of how uh, employers can better support individuals um, to, to, to essentially thrive and, and continue to thrive in their workplace. I, I'm really interested to, to know a bit more about what the, the background to that was. It was commissioned by the then Prime Minister, Theresa May. Um, what, what was the what was the background to the report and the, and the timing, and, and of course your involvement? Okay, um, well, uh, we'll start with me because I like talking about me. But normally, the uh, I, I'm involved in this area simply because about thirty years ago, I discovered I was feeling like SHIT, and discovered that I was suffering from what they call clinical depression. Although there's a lack of definition of what that means. So I've got involved with it ever since and learned how to handle my own problems and so sort of and became known for it. And I kind of reckoned that if I didn't talk about it, who who would? Because by the time I realized it, I was really bluntly rather successful, not exactly impoverished. I had a wife who still talked to me, children who talked to me, and a lot of friends and stuff. So so I did talk, so it became quite well known. Anyway, so to your question, I was rung up just before Christmas. It must be no. Four years ago, three or four years ago, I can't remember, by the then head of the policy unit at number 10, say the Prime Minister would like me to chair a commission on mental health. So I was frightfully chuffed at this. Um, and by the way, as a side issue, a little known fact about Theresa May is she's passionately interested in mental health. And although I hardly know her, on the basis of the two discussions I've had with her about it, she's very well informed. I thought about it. And I thought the last thing we need is any kind of a commission, royal or otherwise, because you have commissions by government when there's huge disagreement on something. Now, uh, academics can always disagree, but the truth is, the great thing to understand about mental health is we, the human race, know the square root of very little about it. There's not much to disagree about. So I went back the next day and said, look, it's not such a good idea, because we have a commission, it'll take... Uh, two years, there'll be rooms full of ring binders with evidence, etc. And then I'll have to get the lowest common denominator out of about eight or 10 human beings. Why does she just commission a report? So they came back 
very quickly the next morning and said, okay, fine, you do it. At which point I made the one good decision um, of the last decade. There's about one of him. I said, fine, I'll do it so long as you ask Paul Farmer as well. Uh, Paul Farmer was and is the chief executive of Mind and has done a staggering job, not just for Mind, but for all of us, and is a really, really good guy. And I rang up Paul and he said, oh, I'd be delighted to be your number two. I said, no, 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 Paul, this is joint and several. It's together, which of course is mad. You don't have two people doing something. Actually, he's a friend for life. We, we spent, uh, we met with eight, nine civil servants once a week for a year and did it together and it worked a treat. So that, that's, that's the background of how it happened. That's a great, great story. And, and, you know, when I, when I read it, um, uh, which, which was re was recently and with, you know, with the benefit of, of, um, some experience in this area through, through my own role, the two things that, that stood out at me was one, the very clear conclusion that the UK faces a significant mental health challenge, uh, particularly in the workplace. And I, you know, obviously I and many of our listeners are very much focused on workplace mental health. And the other was was that although there was a strong human cost to what was going on, that actually there was a very strong financial cost, whether that was to individual businesses, the economy, or, or the world economy. And what what were the key sort of takeaways for you from the report? You know, you've had the benefit of a couple of years to reflect on your conclusions. What are, what are the things that you think were most powerful in that report? I assume we'll come on to any thoughts I have on what businesses should be doing, et cetera, et cetera. But starting where point you left. Um, I have to say, I assumed when we started that we would be producing a Bleeding Hearts report um, saying this is awful and in the name of humanity and decency and morality, we've got to do something about it. And I hope our report is that. But um, um, we did something which, with words of hindsight, thank goodness we did it. We commissioned an independent report on the extent of the problem. Now, we could have got the Government Economic Service to do it, and they were very good, by the way. But the trouble is, people wouldn't have believed it. But we commissioned Deloitte to do an independent report. And as you know, if you've read it, I'm going to, uh, but it's some years ago, but I think I can remember the facts. Um, they did a pretty good analysis over a period of months and concluded the UK economy was losing something like 100 billion pounds a year um, through uh, mental health. and. You know, that sounds self-indulged stuff. Most of that is tangible, identifiable expenditures. The amount of money wasted on training people who then had to leave because of mental health problems. I mean, fixed amounts of money. Um, and we, um, and it's something like, I think, £1,500 per employee, not just those who are mentally ill, was being wasted. Or something astonishing um, sum of money. Um, they then... Um, found, looked for case studies where um, people had invested, companies had invested in improving mental health of my employees, and they found 20, as it happened, just a round figure of 20. Every single one, and, and where they, and it's very rare, where someone had quantified the effect, they found a positive return on investment. Um, and um, to underline the point, and because you'll have read it, but it's a wonderful thing, by wonderful. Um, chance, something like three weeks before the report came out, The Lancet published an article about a chunk, a part of the Australian Fire Service, um, which talked about them investing in trying to improve the mental health, because it was a very pressurised form of employment. 
And they found that for every Oz, I think the exact figures were extraordinary how things would come back to you, even my ripe old age. For every Aussie dollar invested, they got a $9.8 return. Now, that's extreme, but it's a really important point. Um, this is not just a bleeding heart thing to achieve exactly saying, hey, you're a good guy, you've got to do nice things. It is actually saying, this isn't self-indulgent stuff. You can actually improve the profits of your business. Do you think that ROI approach, that, that empirical approach, is, is as important to, to government taking the issue seriously as it is to individual businesses? I think to be... Um, uh, fair to our former Prime Minister, Mrs May, definitely. She was definitely, she did this, and she commissioned another report on the aspects of the legal background of adults. This is something that's close to her heart. In fact, it's, you know, we all know she was completely preoccupied, poor thing, with Brexit. It's about the only other thing she did. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, but I would say the civil service has some of the best examples of... Uh, people paying proper attention to mental health. Yeah, generally, the politicians aren't that interested. Um, but the civil servants are. The central government are the best outfits um, in the UK. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think you know, so much of this comes down to, to individual leadership in the in the context in, w in which you find yourself. And and you're right, in government, that ebbs and flows, obviously. That's the nature of the, nature of the system. Let me give you a simple example of this, which has come back to me. Um, the daughter of a friend of mine works for the Home Office. And she made contact with me three or four years ago and said, would I come and talk to a group of people? I did. And it was standing remotely. Someone in one of their outposts in Sheffield or Leeds, one of them, um, had gone to their boss and said, look, a number of us uh, have problems with mental health. Uh, could we do something about it? And, it was and this thing was incredibly impressive. I'd like to say I spoke so brilliantly that I put my... But it wasn't the case. Um, they were so open, so honest, and they discussed their own problems in front of 50 or 60 fellow civil servants, most of whom each one individually didn't know. It was good. I mean, so there's a lot that's good going on in central government. Yeah, and of course, one of the things that you talked about in the report was the importance of, of transparency. And, um, you know, I guess I guess that is a good example, um, as, as, as well as, as, well as in, in, uh, in the Home Office. What, what does transparency mean to you? How, how can we push that transparency in, in organisations? Take one step back to the broader general question. Okay, to ask a question that, that, that a, um, a friend of mine asked me, and um, I will give you the official answer from the report, and then which is all of which still stands, and then I'll tell you the answer I wish I'd given him. Is uh, a guy with several thousand people uh, working for him, and um, who I, I genuinely, you know, he genuinely. Uh, his motives, he, he, he wanted to make sure the people working for him um, um, led better lives and were more contented. But he also had noticed the cost savings could be made. And something else that isn't in the report but should have been is if you look at the generation, should we say, under 40, certainly under 30, they are much more literate in mental health. And I, in my own life, I now can think of three examples of people in their 20s who have taken an employment decision based on their view of how well the organisation deals with mental health, not because they've had mental health problems, but it's been one of their criteria. First, I think all organisations that have more than one person working for them um, should have a mental health policy slash plan. 
doesn't have to be more than a side of paper or a little bit on the website. But but when people go, it sh they should know it is, and it should set out what the company's philosophy is on it, what what the company will do for you with mental health problems. If you if the, if you want to put your hand up, what you do, etc. etc. Um, second, um, the um, um, the company should make reasonable investments, and they don't have to be big at all, in increasing mental health awareness, uh, to state the obvious, uh, by just having it talked about and getting people in to talk about them. Um, third, and I think very important, um, I, 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 is the way people are managed. Um, the um, Jeremy Haywood, who was the cabinet secretary, but um, sadly has died uh, young, um, and was he was persuaded by Paul's and my work um, to bring in when he was doing his annual reviews to bring in the performance of the person reporting the permanent sector reporting to him on managing the mental health and well-being of their employees. Um, that was a criterion which would affect um, the outcome of the review. And furthermore, being someone who didn't like nonsense. He asked someone to drop a set of metrics. So you are, shall we say, the permanent secretary in DWP, and you'll say, oh, we had a wonderful mental health awareness day, Jeremy, and we did this and that and that. And Jeremy would say, well, how do you explain for the fact that, um, um, that uh, five years ago, Z percent of people were putting their hands up and talking, and now it's Z minus five, et cetera. So, uh, I, and I think that, uh, and I personally... I was blind, mental health blind, until I was well into my 30s and very insensitive and not at all aware of it. Um, I've become much better, and I believe that um, in terms of your direct reports, let's say the average person has 10 direct reports, shall we say, or eight or something like that, um, that it's part of your job is to know enough about them and what's going on in their lives that you can spot if something's wrong and that if something is wrong, you can put it into context. And I've been doing that ever since I was in my mid-30s and encouraging other people to do it. And I think the one of the things you need to get your direct reports to talk to you about is what they're doing about theirs. And do they really know what's going on in their lives? Um, I, I'm a nosy, I was going to say, I use a rude word. I'm a nosy soul. Um, but I think it is utterly irresponsible um, if you're working with people to know what's happening in their personal lives. If they're if their marriage is in trouble, if they've got problems with a child who's ill, if da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Because, you know, we work very intensively with our colleagues, and you need to know that sort of thing to be able to help. So so going back to this, so, um, um, management is um, all important. You guys need to know I lost 10 years of my life because of clinical depression. A hell of a thing for the permanent secretary to do. Now, you are an ambitious 28-year-old pushing your way up DCMS, is that going to make you more likely to put your hand up? You bet it is, etc. And then, I can't resist telling this, there was a minister who's got a wonderful name. Oh, dear. Anyway, she, she's a football referee, um, as well as being this. And, and she was, um, she's probably still in government now. I don't know. And, and she, she, she followed on and talked. And she, they changed, they changed DCMS by doing that. And I think, so getting um, uh, people who are credible to talk about their own mental health problems or their husbands or their wives or their children's or their friends' mental health problems is the quickest way I know to changing um, to changing the culture. And it's hugely important. I wish we put it in the report. 
I think that's really fascinating because it's not that that approach that that philosophy is not only relevant to to mental health. I think it's relevant to so many issues and challenges that people are facing, and the whole agenda of trying to to create a more inclusive work environment. I think is is about having those conversations about you know the challenges that 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 people face, and we we've, we've had some some fascinating conversations in our own business about. Um, you know, challenges that that, that that women have faced returning to the workplace that some of our black colleagues have faced growing up in environments where um, you know they were facing prejudice from a very early age and just just surfacing and, and being transparent about those conversations I think is a, it creates a really healthy workplace one of the things I'm interested in I mean we, we, we've obviously couched this conversation in the in the in the frame of mental health but I think a lot of organizations are talking at the moment about well-being and positive cultures more generally. I mean, do you do you see those as as different things? So is, is is there a spectrum between mental health and 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 positive, healthy organisational culture, and how how do those things relate to each other? Well, first, I think I said earlier on something that I think is hugely important. But no, I'm going to caveat everything I'm saying by saying the following: I shouldn't say this. I don't really know what I'm talking about, but then neither does anyone else. Um, this this is the truth of the matter. Uh, and just in case anyone takes me seriously, you might be looking at this. The, the truth is the human race knows very little about mental health. And by, uh, there's a, a wonderful man called, oh, God, anyway, he ran um, NIMH, which is the National Institute of Mental Health in America, which is the biggest expenditure on mental health, and stood down about two years ago. Oh, yeah, it's going to cut. The name will come back to me. But anyway. And he, I came across the other day, uh, about a year ago, two years ago, he um, made this astonishing statement of great integrity, saying that he spent it was 13 years of his life running it, and he'd spent, I think, $20 billion, some astonishing sum of money on neuroscience and this and that. And he couldn't think of a single thing he developed that had helped a single patient in the clinic. Um, and that we, we just got the approach wrong. That, that's a very extreme um, um, case, but basically, this is an area. It's a bit like cancer. Fifty years ago, before you were born, Matt, um, the uh, um, we didn't know much about cancer. We really didn't. The there was a community of people called cancer specialists who said they did, but they didn't. Um, we now know not that much, but we know much more. Mental health, we uh, we um, don't know very much. So, having said that, in our report, we make the distinction. We we say, look, the the at any point in time, you may be thriving, you're fine, you may be struggling, or you may be ill. And the vast majority of us, like you know, 99.9% .9 of us, are either thriving or struggling and moving between the two. A, a relatively small percentage of us are seriously ill with serious illnesses. Now, I can't prove that to you, but I, it just to, that fits with my experience. So now the, the word well-being has always slightly bothered me, uh, not least because Sally Davis, the last um, chief medical officer, was completely wonderful. Um, in her, uh, she did a report on mental health, a very, very good one about five or six years ago, where she kind of said, if anyone talks about well-being again without giving me chapter and verse as to what it means and proper scientific proof, I'll shoot them. And it is a bit too easy of a word. However, translated into my common sense, and let me now switch to one of the other people I really respect. I mentioned Simon Wesley, who was president of the Royal College of Psychiatry. He's a really, really good guy. 
uh, and then became the first psychiatrist to be whatever you are at the Society of Medicine, etc. And when he came to see me to talk about this work, and he sat on my sofa, and he said, well, don't know why we're doing a report, Dennis. It's perfectly obvious what the answer is. I said, oh, yeah. And he pointed his finger at me. He said, it's your responsibility. By which he meant to say, say, are you, are you presumably your senior partner or something, or managing director of ten? Well, it's your responsibility. Uh, what he was basically saying is that, yes, to be sure, for the relatively small number of people who have something which is a clinical illness, like um, they really can't get out of bed and they, they really want to throw this out of windows or they they hear voices all the time, whatever, whatever it is, is to be sure that's what specialists are for. But for the rest, um, we've all got to become more aware of mental health, our own mental health, other people's, and get better at helping other people. You know, that if you or I go out in the street now and stop the first person we meet and say, how's your mental health? They'll probably think we're talking about an illness. Actually, if you said, how's your physical health? They wouldn't. And um, I regret to say, I was not brought up, nor did I bring my four sons up to be aware that they had mental health just like they have physical health. And we are now, I'm glad to say, but we need to accelerate the process, moving into a society where we're all aware we've got mental health and we're all becoming better at managing our own and helping other people. So coming right back to uh, the workplace, I, um, I very much hope and believe we're moving to a situation where in workplaces, everyone is aware they've got their own mental health and their colleagues have. And they're aware of little tricks of the trade of how to help deal with them, and et cetera, et cetera. I've had to learn that over the last 20 years. So I'll stop trying. I'm walking. I'm talking too much. No, no, it's perfect. I mean, I was, I was just, as you were as you were talking, I was reflecting. I, I read an article this morning, and I was just, just reaching to see who it was by, actually, um, which was about your mental health five a day. So, we, you know, we've all got our head around having our physical um, well-being protected by by having five a day. But it was talking about, you know, sleep and reflection and rest and all these kinds of things. Um and uh, which I thought was a very, very interesting way of um, of thinking about things. But, but I, I hear you, and I think you know the the the, the responsibility, um, the individual responsibility, the, the 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 need to own the issue um, at every sense, whether that's the the transparency of the issue or the or, or the solutions to the issue, I think is absolutely critical. And um, you know, personal responsibility stands very much at the, the core of that. But but leaders in business, back to your original point start with having a plan <laughs> at least at least have to have a, an acknowledgement a transparency of the issue and a plan and i think that that came through very clearly now the, the report is absolutely packed full of recommendations um which i think was one of its one of its great uh, one of its great assets there's, there's a lot in there for people to to dig into and we'll 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 provide a link to the report um with the, with the podcast but thinking about your own experience and 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 your personal experience in that you obviously had a very successful business career, but you've also been very open about the mental mental health issues that you faced. What what are the what are the recommendations for businesses in particular? I mean, you talked you talked a lot about government and um, public sector in the report, but thinking about businesses, what are the recommendations for businesses that you think are, are the critical ones? It starts at the top of businesses. It's great that you're doing this. It starts. Um, I mentioned legal in general. And I'm a bit out of touch, but Nigel Wilson, who runs Legal and General, chief executive, who is um, um, a rather formidable human being, um, he has been totally behind um, their move into mental health. And I don't know if he um, 
uh, originated, but they had and have, I believe, a policy called no red card, uh, no red card, um, um, uh, uh, which basically is saying to the employees of the business, if you put your hand up with a mental health problem, there will be no red card. We will support you, and it won't affect your career. And I know about that because they asked me to come and be part of the cabaret when they launched it at. They spent must have a huge amount of money. They took over the conference facilities at Twickenham, and and they invited. They used sport. They invited a load of sportsmen who were infinitely more interesting than I was to come and talk, and they did it properly. And then the key point, and Nigel, who I've known for a long time, he's a friend. Um, uh, wrote to me and asked me to do it and said he'd be launching it. So, so I thought Nigel would turn up at nine o'clock and do it. And we'd do things throughout the day. And then Nigel was there at nine o'clock, whenever it was, stayed all day, waited to the end. And the his PA or whatever uh, person was called told me he only looked at his mobile once. This is the chief executive, one of our biggest FTSE. Now, I don't know how many people uh, LNG employs, what, about 100,000 or something ridiculous. That sort of information gets around um, when the boss, so starting from the top. Second, I think I said to you, get other people, you know, get, get other people to talk about it and show that it's good for you. It's, it's a good thing to talk about it. Third, definitely spend money on, and very small sums of money, on mental health education, you know, uh, fourth, definitely have a written policy as to what you'll do, including what you'll pay for and what you won't pay for. And I do. But and since either the, the Simon Wesley view of hey, it's your problem, you fix it. Actually, you shouldn't need to pay for that much. Um, you know that that uh, I'm going to make it up. I I happen to know um, that the person who's responsible, well, the most senior person for marketing and Taylor Vintners is going through a very bad time, is feeling like SHIT. Um, I don't think she's got serious clinical depression, but I think she's feeling awful. And I think it's your problem, um, and not a psychiatrist's problem or a psychologist's problem or whatever, whatever. And I think you probably have, you need to develop the skill set to be sensitive to it, to know about it, to how to handle it. Um, the um, A guy... Oh dear! If I can remember his name, uh, he wouldn't mind me telling. Anyway, he 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 works at the BBC, and he um, very senior. I mean, he was running, I think, three thousand people news journalists or something. Um, Matthew or something. Anyway, and he got very very bad depression, and his boss, in a spirit of um, enlightenment, said, "Don't worry about anything. You go home and don't come back till you're better." That was. Completely wrong, because um, well, you're sending this guy back. To, as it happens, he's, he doesn't have another half, or didn't last time I talked to him about three years ago. And so anyway, uh, his boss then talked to someone, and I, I don't know what happened, but rang him up and said, hey, by the way, you know that cafe we occasionally meet at? How about you and I getting together once every three or four days for breakfast? Now, uh, that made all the difference. Uh, just... It's I, and and that contact. It's not necessarily right for everyone, but the, the, I'd, I'd like to meet the boss because he or she, I think it was a she. No, no, I don't, uh, was quite a thoughtful, aware person and took good advice. So 
you just need to create a culture where people think like that. Um, if someone in your office has a temperature, you know what to do and what to say. Um, if they're having a lousy time and you happen to know their marriage is in trouble and this and that, no. um, can are you aware of what um, Thames Ward has been doing with virtual reality? No, tell us more about that. You, yeah. You've alluded to that before. I'm, I'm intrigued. Um, so the Carl, whoever is the head of health and safety, it's Carl, someone, anyway, come on. Uh, an ex-soldier, an ex-tank commander, who, just for your interest, he is one of the two or three most impressive people I've met in the mental health space. The army never promoted him above being a sergeant. Isn't that shocking? I Just really, really shocking. <laughs> anyway, that's a, as an aside. Um, he had a, um, experienced virtual reality. I think he did several trips to Bosnia huh? when he was a soldier. So they've um, developed the following technique, and I think I'm around saying everyone has to go through it. And, and I think I'm also around saying, but you could check on it, that if you're tendering for a contract uh, with Thames Water, the team that will be working on it has to go through it. So, and they, um, they showed me one of their bits of virtuality in just one. Um, so you first of all shared a film, and I think the guy's name was, and whatever it was, I'm going to say his name was Matt. <laughs> The people Matt, and you saw two of his colleagues, and of course they're actors, um, are talking about Matt. He'd been given a promotion, and Matt wasn't himself, and they were fed up with Matt. He um, and it was just dreadful. And what are they going to do about it, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. You then switch to the virtual reality, and you put on the things, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and um, you find yourself living Matt's life, and you're in his home dealing with his wife, his children, um, uh, his friends, etc., And it's pretty grueling. And you then go back to a film bit and, and you, you have his boss talking about him and, and so on and so on. And it goes on and you see his wife leaving him and it's brilliantly done. And eventually Matt goes up a tower and is about to throw himself out of a window and someone pulls his feet back. And I promise you at that point, um, I want to take the things off as complete. You then go back to a, um, a discussion um, um, uh, um, with um, yeah, the actors about how they could have noticed and what they should have done and how other people would notice their colleagues. And it's, I will, you know, I don't know about... I'm sure Taylor Vintner has brilliant first aid courses, which you all do, and I'm sure you will remember it. But I remember how to do CPR for about three and a half minutes after a first aid course, and I don't remember anything. I, and I'm nothing against mental health first aid, and it's a good thing too, but that, I think, will stay with me for the rest of my life. It is utterly brilliant and can't have cost them that much to do. Um, no, I think I mean, I mean clearly, clearly impactful, and I think it, it reminds me of something that there's some work that's been done at Cornell University on the psychology of leadership, and they 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 go through um, an approach which is whenever you're about to jump to a conclusion, a negative conclusion about why someone has done something or not done something in your team, actually just take time out and and write down three possible reasons why they might have that's not really, attended a meeting. That's really good. Or, yeah. It's, it's, it's very it's a very practical tool and as, as someone um who regularly jumps to conclusions <laughs> um i i put myself through that discipline and def definitely found it helpful and and it may and it may not even be that you come across the correct reason why someone's doing something they're doing 
but actually the conscious act of trying to think outside what's in front of you is, is very helpful. And that, that story reminds me of that, that, that leadership approach. You know, lots of people are in a, in a different working environment where it's, it's perhaps harder to, to have that peripheral vision. I mean, do you, do you see any, any long-term challenges with the way we're, we're working now and the way it looks like the working world's going and any thoughts on how we might address that? I suspect the challenge for Tate Bittner is to <laughs> create a flexible system which gives people flexibility as to what they do. But the answer is, I, I, I don't. I don't know what the implications of all this are, except that they are, I mean, I've been, for my within my generation, I've been quite ahead of the game on using technology, which doesn't mean to say I'm at all literate in it, by the way, but I had an email address in the early 90s, which for some of my advanced stages, uh, quite fine. Um, and I thought I understood what was happening. I, I had not, I hadn't understood how much time I normally in London. I'm not here, but how much time I spent going from meeting to meeting in London. I'm, I'm, I'm ridiculous, completely silly. I mean, I now have an extra hour or so every day. So, Dennis, look, looking back on the report, you know, from from the vantage point of being a few years on, are there things that you that weren't in the report that you would you would include now, or that you wish you'd focused on more? Yes, I, I mean, I think the, the, uh, I'm not humble enough to admit of things that we hadn't thought of, <laughs> but there were things that we kind of knew we weren't doing justice to at the time. And the obvious area is the SME economy. I mean, basically, um, I um, I think it's fair comment. I think uh, my um, that. Uh, I doubt whether there's more than a minority of the top 250 quoted companies who haven't moved to having proactive mental health policies. Um, and I'm not saying it's entirely due to our work, but because there was a following wind in society. A lot of it's created by people like my partner in crime, Paul Farmer, in mind. Um, but at, and in a sense, quite often I get asked about large companies, I say, well, don't bother me with it. It's kind of... You can do it yourselves. You're rich enough and musty enough and ugly enough, and you've got it. And there'll be people working for you who know more about it than you do. Uh, I said that to a great friend of mine the other day who's nearer my age than yours um, doing it. Um, the SMEs are a different matter. Um, and, you know, when you're walking around white or whatever and you meet, um, seeing civil servants or politicians, talking to them, you kind of get the impression they think the country is run by big companies. And, employ and of course, they don't. It isn't. Uh, big companies employ a relatively small percentage of the population. Uh, it's um, small organisations that employ the vast majority of our fellow citizens. Now, uh, does that mean no SMEs are doing the right things? As a matter of not at all. Some of them are way ahead of the game. But th there is um, uh, uh, that is the biggest priority area for action. And if government was to do another operation, and the last thing I want to do is they should focus on practical communications policies that can deal with SMEs. And, of course, there is a very, below SMEs, there's a very, an emerging, very tricky area of the economy called the gig economy. All those uh, mainly young men and women you see wandering around on bicycles who are, I'm going to exaggerate, typically going home to flats, which, flat shares with people who may come and go, without a huge amount, with virtually no work support and very little home support, et cetera, et cetera, and not a huge amount of income. And, and it's an area I know very little about, um, uh, um, but it's an area I observe. So that, that, those would be the two areas. And I, the SME, I mean, 
to take SMEs, one of the things that is beginning to happen, and I think will uh, will happen, just as with the environmental things, you increasingly have large organizations, whether in government or in big companies, saying, unless you tick certain sustainable boxes, doing certain things in the environment, you can't tender for our contracts, um, which seems to me a thoroughly good. And I think increasingly, um, let's take Tesco's. I don't know what Tesco does. I have no reason to think anything other than it's good. But I would hope that Tesco's, if it hasn't done so, will move to um, a simple policy whereby you can't tender to be a Tesco supplier unless you convince us you're doing a number of the right things on mental health. Would, could that lead to a box ticking thing? Yep, it could. But is that better than nothing? Yep. I think that it's fascinating. I mean, I think the, the the SME point is really interesting, and and certainly, you're right. Within, within my own organisation, there are there are there are lots of people who are very very enthusiastic about um, approaching these challenges uh, consciously and positively. And, and I think the, in the SME, you've got you've almost got the, it's an easier opportunity to capture that enthusiasm and do something with it. And it's also an environment where you've got you know, back to to transparency and being aware of what's going on in people's lives. It's much easier to do that in an organisation that's the you know, the size of a frigate rather than the size of an aircraft carrier, and I think that's that that's a real that's a real oppo- that's a real opportunity. And but but the, the the question about the gig economy is is an interesting one too, actually. And I, I can see a I can see a report or a, an article or something on you know who's looking after the gig economy workers being a, being a really interesting because that that's a that's a business model that's here to stay. I have no doubt, and um, and will grow. So, so, so finally, Dennis. I mean, just you've, you've been very transparent about your own your own personal experiences with mental health, and you've had a, a long and varied career. I wondered, you know, what your you know if there was if there was one thing you would suggest leaders reflect on that's based on all, all those experiences that you've had. What would that What would that be? I regret to say, in a sense, if, if you're only lying me one thing, it's like does time this. You've got one thing for a leader to reflect on. It would be read the report. Read no, no, don't ever read the report. Read the summary. It's very uh, says he with the modesty for which I'm famous. It's very good the summary. It actually and there, um, and if you're interested, get hold of the Deloitte's report because it will sh- convince you and show you that for most organisations, um, by investing relatively modest sums of money. Um, mainly by investing your own time as a leader, um, um, you can actually improve the financial profitability and performance of your organisation. Now, of course, there are other things I want leaders to concentrate on, and I I don't think leaders are nasty people who want their colleagues to be unhappy or miserable. (laughs) But if I had to find one thing, this is not just a do-gooding thing. This is about... um, uh, making sure that you have a more productive, uh, more profitable organisation. I mean, that would be the one thing I'd ask them to concentrate on. Great. I think that provides fantastic perspective for, for the for the end of our conversation. We'll we'll make sure that the the report and the Deloitte report are available through our own uh, our own channels. And just just thank you very much for for your time today and all the great work that you've done on this topic. 